and welcome to the second lecture in the second week of the 1985 Columbia University School of Library Service Rare Book School. Tomorrow evening at 6 o'clock will be the first public showing of From Punch to Printing Type, the 45-minute videotape that the Book Arts Press has been working with Stan Nelson of the Smithsonian Institution on for the past year or so, and I hope that many of you will be able to come see it. The t-shirt shop will be open as usual directly after this lecture, there, as, we, as will be the apron shop. But without further ado, it gives me, as always, great pleasure to, to present uh, Mr. Paul Oscar Christeller. Ladies and gentlemen, colleagues and guests, I'm very grateful for the invitation to speak again in your program and to talk to you this time about some aspects of my work that are to be sure of direct concern to students of bibliography, bibliography in the archival sciences but also relevant to the work of students of history, and especially those who wish to explore the intellectual history of the Middle Ages since the Renaissance, which has been my field of specialization. I hope you will forgive me if some of the things I'm going to tell you have been said or even printed by me or by others on previous occasions. The history of the Renaissance, as that of any other period or area, may be studied in a variety of ways. We might try to project our own problems into the past, interpret the Renaissance as a forerunner of later periods, if not of the present, and try to justify our study by pretending that it will help us to solve our own problems. We may attempt to answer by original speculation or intuition the big questions that have stubbornly eluded our predecessors, perhaps because these questions were wrongly formulated or because the evidence for answering them is not available. We may think we are making a major contribution by translating well-known facts into a fashionable terminology or ideology or by arguing more or less cleverly about the latest book or article on our subject. I must say most of recent uh, uh, scholarly, quote, scholarly production, unquote, belongs to one or two of these methods, which I am not adopting or approving. I favor a different approach and a method that is now often contemptuously referred to as traditional scholarship. <laughs> it consists in the patient study of our source material and in the application of tested methods and skills, mostly historical and philological, to this material. These skills must be constantly refined and they must be applied to new problems and topics but they must be learned in the first place. And unlike some of the more ambitious procedures, such as creativity, they can be taught. <laughs> These skills constitute for the scholar the tools that make of him a craftsman, not an artist and not a journalist, and that help him to avoid many, though by no means, all errors in the course of his work. One of the tools or auxiliary skills that have been useful to historians in many areas, and especially to the intellectual historian of the Middle Ages and of the Renaissance, is the study of manuscripts. For the working scholar, it opens up a whole new dimension. It gives him direct access to the written sources on which much of the edifice of historical knowledge rests, and even a physical contact with these sources. It is exciting since it is full of surprises 
and may lead to new information and to new conclusions that have a much more solid basis than any speculations or arguments. For the manuscript text does for the intellectual historian what the original document does for the political, economic, or institutional historian, and it does even more. For whereas the social historian must infer the actual facts and events from the documents which are before him, the intellectual historian is actually confronted with his texts and with the ideas expressed in these texts, and all he has to do is to read, to understand, and interpret them, which is not quite as easy as it may sound. The scholar who engages in manuscript research thus needs a firm knowledge of the languages in which his texts are written, and in our case, especially in Latin. I might say in parenthesis that in my opinion nobody has a right to work or publish on the intellectual history prior to the year 1800 who does not have a firm command of Latin, a language in which most of our primary sources are written. And he needs enough pedagogy to decipher the manuscripts and also describe and to date them. The rest comes with experience, especially a sense for the characteristics of a given manuscript for the history and physiognomy of the libraries in which they are preserved, and for the extent to which a particular library, catalog, or inventory may be trusted. Very often they cannot be. Needless to say, a detailed knowledge of the subject under investigation does not do any harm. In the field of medieval and Renaissance studies, the need for further manuscript research is very great indeed, far greater than most laymen, and even many historians may realize, because I'm sorry to say that even many professional historians do not do manuscript research, but rely on the facts found in general reference works on the subject and then start from there. Until 1450, when the printed book made its appearance in Western Europe, the manuscript book reigned supreme. And even after that date, the manuscript book retained for some time a part of its previous importance and should not be neglected. A large number of texts, and even of important texts, has never been printed or has not been reprinted since the 16th century. And many modern editions of medieval and Renaissance texts are unreliable or inadequate and should be replaced by modern critical editions. In other words, for many texts there are no editions, for many other texts there are bad editions, which are not enough. Some decades ago, a famous scholar on bibliography whom I prefer not to mention by name in public, out of respect, and who I must admit subsequently changed his mind, declared in public that he paid no attention to manuscripts since all important texts had been printed. Of course, there might be some disagreement as to what is important, but the dictum would seem to imply that a scholarly editor who publishes a previously unprinted text possesses a kind of magic wand by which he transforms an intrinsically unimportant text into an important one. <laughs> this is, uh, of course, I would be very happy if we had, could claim this power, but it never occurred to me to do so. I assume the importance was there before the edition was made. We should really be flattered by the thought that we have that much power, but I'm afraid we should not presume that much. Rather admit that there are many important texts that are still in manuscript and that are waiting for us and our successors to be published and properly studied. I'm glad to state that manuscript research has made great progress during the last few decades. Scholars have had much greater facilities for traveling, Many libraries have become more accessible, their holdings have become better known through new or better catalogs, 
The invention of the microfilm has made it possible to study manuscripts far away from their original location and to compare in one place many manuscripts scattered in different and distant collections. We have learned to treat a manuscript not merely as an impersonal unit in a statistical calculus of textual variance, which seems to be still prevalent among classical scholars, as was so often the case with classical manuscripts in the 19th century, but we have learned from distinguished scholars of our century to study each manuscript as a unique and individual historical object. Moreover, the field of Latin paleography itself has undergone important changes. Some decades ago, the study of Latin paleography was limited almost entirely to late ancient and early medieval manuscripts, whereas the history of the Gothic and humanistic script was neglected or badly understood. In recent decades, the field of Renaissance paleography has greatly expanded thanks to the work of B.L. Allman, A. Delamere, and others. We used to be satisfied when we could date a Renaissance manuscript by half a century and identify the country of its origin. Now we have learned, also with the help of illuminations and of bindings, to assign a given manuscript to a quarter or decade and to a region or city, and even to an individual scribe known from other signed and dated manuscripts. When the question is crucial for me, for example, and I'm not sure of my case, I do not have a firm eye for individual book hands, I usually write a letter to Oxford, to Miss Delamere, with whom I'm on very good terms, and she is likely to answer, uh, I think this manuscript was written by so-and-so, usually a well-known figure, or at least, let's say, um, between 1450 and 1460 in Padua or in Florence, and I trust her judgment when she says that. I should like to explain that there is a significant difference in appearance and in function between a manuscript book, usually preserved in a library, and a document or record, usually preserved in archives. In the Renaissance, the autograph letter and the author's original draft begin to appear. We have a number of autograph manuscripts by distinguished uh, uh, scholars of the period, sometimes a scribal or a scribal copy corrected by the author. When I talk about Renaissance manuscripts, I'm thinking primarily of manuscript books written by hand, preserved in manuscript collections, but otherwise having most of the characteristics that belong to a book. A text produced in many copies to be kept and read or checked. In other words, the function of the book prior to invention of printing. Manuscripts may be and have been studied for a variety of reasons. Bibliographers have been concerned with the provenance of a manuscript or with the history of the libraries to which it belonged at different times. Art historians have studied the history of book illumination and of book binding. Paleographers, the history of handwriting, of the various writing centers or scriptoria, and of individual scribes or copyists. For our purpose, the most important element is what for many others has been of but minor concern, the textual content of the manuscripts. I have to be even apologetic about it because most current manuscript scholars do what they call codicology, which consists merely in the description of the external characteristics of a book. Size, the number of scribes, the uh, gatherings, uh, uh, the watermarks, if it's on paper, and all that kind of thing. I think this is very important, but I don't think that the content of the manuscript should be neglected, as it very often is. There is a tendency in this area, so many areas in our time, to overrate the mechanical and physical uh, characteristics uh, at the expense of the intellectual 
substance of the material which we are concerned. I sense this trend from all corners, find it very hard to resist it and to defend against it the things I and my colleagues and students are trying to do. For art historians, this is so unimportant that the catalogues of illuminated manuscripts say very little about the text. And I remember an amusing case where a distinguished art historian of my personal acquaintance discussed at length the illustrations of a given manuscript without even mentioning the author and title of the work contained in the manuscript. An unpublished and rare text that happened to be of great interest to me. What we attempt to do is to locate the manuscript copies of a certain text, to study them, and sometimes to edit them. Everything else is for us subordinate to this major task, at least to me. Although the script, the illumination, the binding, even the coat of arms of the first owner may be highly significant for our purpose. It's important to know who owned a manuscript or for whom it was written. Our sources and also our procedures will of course vary according to the language, the age, and the genre of the text which we are investigating. My own interest is centered on the period from 1300 to 1600, although at times I have gone beyond these limits, and on the history of philosophy and of learning. I began my work on manuscripts with Marcelli Ficino and his circle, and published my findings in an edition of his unpublished writings, which appeared in the prehistoric year 1937. When my curiosity broadened, I began to work on a finding list of uncatalogued Renaissance manuscripts, my Ita Italicum, of which three volumes were published between 63 and 83, and of which I hope to publish three more volumes. My work on the catalogue of Latin translations and commentaries focused my attention on such translations and commentaries, including those of late antiquity and of the Middle Ages. My interest in the history of universities and in the medieval antecedents of Renaissance humanism and of Aristotelian scholasticism diverted my attention to the study of medieval rhetoric and medicine. I mention this in order to explain that my experience as a manuscript scholar is limited to these areas, since the examples I'm going to cite are drawn from my own experience. My method evolved from the primary task finding the manuscripts containing certain texts or authors. This method has its limitations. There are other methods that were not practical for my purpose, but they deal different results, which escape me. Other scholars have examined all manuscripts containing a given classical author and drawn very interesting conclusions from it. Or others have studied all manuscripts that retained their original Renaissance bindings all manuscripts written by the same scribe. And I learned from them because sometimes with their methods they caught some birds that had, or fish, that had escaped my limited net. The actual procedure which I'm going to describe depends on the goal which we are setting for our work. In many instances, especially at the beginning of our career, uh, we are interested in only one text or author. That's natural. We must obviously start with the manuscripts mentioned in previous studies on the subject, and especially in the printed editions of our text, if there are any. Manuscript references which we find in this manner are often wrong or incomplete or antiquated. And it is necessary in each case to verify the location and shelf mark of a manuscript. Through the printed catalogues of the respective library, or if necessary, through a written inquiry addressed to the library. We find in an older study or edition a mention of a particular manuscript. We cannot be sure that the manuscript is still there where it was said to be, or that its shelf mark is still the same as quoted. This is a terrible trap for everybody working at second hand on these subjects. 
We are likely to find old references to libraries that no longer exist or that have changed their name. This has happened even recently. Sometimes more than once. There are numerous cases where the shelf mark given in the literature for a manuscript is missing or incomplete or outright false. Classical scholars wrote or refer to the Paris Virgil or the Florentine Pandacts. The fact that a manuscript is famous is no substitute for its shelf mark. <laughs> and in the in this in one case for the Paris Virgil, uh, the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris owns in my calculus at least 30 or 40 different manuscripts of Virgil and you have to add the number in order to find out which is the Virgil which is probably the earliest of the manuscripts in question. There are outright errors. For example, no, no less a scholar than Theodore Mommsen described the manuscript of inscriptions that interested him from a manuscript then recently acquired by the Berlin Library and added in the title of his article what he makes us believe was a shelf mark. The shelf mark is completely wrong. And whenever there is in later literature a reference to this manuscript, you can with almost mathematical certainty establish whether the scholar has had direct access to the manuscript or whether he merely quote depends on Monson's article. I don't remember the numbers, but something like 240 versus 420 or so. It is, um, and I suspect, uh, a late scholar of my acquaintance that he intentionally trapped his successors by citing a manuscript with a false shelf mark. <laughs> There's a famous case when a, a scholar of my acquaintance asked me to check on a certain manuscript in Florence and he gave me a number which could not be right. It couldn't be right. So I tried to find it, and with the help of an able librarian, I found it. It had a shelf mark completely different. And when I communicated this to my friend, he answered, yes, but in the literature, the manuscript is always quoted that way. And I wrote back and said, if it's quoted that way, it is mathematical proof that since 1804, when the manuscript acquired its present shelf mark, nobody has looked at it. <laughs> we also should never assume that an earlier scholar, except for very recent and very competent scholars, has done a complete job in locating and verifying all manuscripts of a given text. Checking of recent and even not so recent printed catalogues may yield great surprises. I remember a curious case with a colleague at this university, now retired and not living here anymore, made an able edition of a Greek text and said in the preface, the text is known from three manuscripts all in the back. A fourth manuscript mentioned by Nicolaus Heinzius in the 17th century as seen in Heidelberg must be treated as fictitious according to the view of a British editor a few decades ago. I got angry because I think Nicolaus Heinzius knew more on manuscripts than all 19th and 20th century scholars taken together. And I said if he claims to have seen it in Heidelberg, it is probably among the Palatini manuscripts of the Vatican. And a glance at the printed catalog of the Palatini Greki of the manuscript immediately produced the manuscript considered fictitious. So there was at least a fourth manuscript also Vatican and known to a 17th century scholar. My friend took the lesson and checked catalogs and reported to me after a year that he had found at least 12 more manuscripts <laughs> not mentioned in the critical editions. I hope these examples show you what we are up against. 
Now, uh, we, now, of course, uncatalogued or unidentified manuscripts are a further problem. The worst obstacle to scholarly progress in this, as in other matters, is the false belief that certain jobs have been done already, that in fact have not been done and should be done now. The first step in locating manuscripts for a given text or author is to check the indices of printed catalogs of manuscripts. I've tried to give a list of such printed catalogs arranged by towns and libraries in my Latin manuscript books, but even the third edition of that bibliography is by now antiquated and will, I hope, be replaced before long by an edition revised by Dr. Milde. In order to work with these printed catalogs and their indices, a scholar needs access to a library well provided with such printed catalogs. Most of these catalogs are available in the New York area, but they only fall rare. And especially at Columbia is well provided. Uh, many of them are easily accessible in a special section of the rare book room. I suppose the same is true in the Chicago area, combining the resources of this library with those of the Newberry, of the University of uh, Chicago Library and the New Library Library and others. Each library has inevitable gaps, but they may be filled by microfilms, even interlibrary loan. Professor Edward Kranz has now put the indices of all printed catalogs on microfilms that will be deposited in certain libraries and will be available to scholars on interlibrary loan probably in a few months from now. This will greatly facilitate the work of those scholars who have no easy access to major libraries. Indices have, of course, their tricks and are uneven in their quality. We have to look for the right index, for there may be more than one, and in unexpected places. I have, for example, twice when I looked for material, I overlooked a very important manuscript because in the catalog volume which I used, the index was hidden in the middle of the volume, followed by an appendix which had at the end of the volume its own index. I looked at the appendix index and missed the index in the middle of the volume relating to the bulk the same experience I had with one of the handwritten inventories of the Vatican Library. And I had good luck of catching these two important manuscripts through a detour. They had, I had missed them on my first attempt. And I tell that because this can happen to anybody. We must look for each author under all possible forms of his name. First and last name. Latin and vernacular name and have some imagination how the name might be registered. Indices, indices have some other tricks and traps that can be overcome only with great ingenuity or not at all. Index makers, as all bibliographers, tend to perform miracles by transforming one author into two, or vice versa. There are even some important printed catalogs that have no indices. Outstanding example, the uh, um, list of manuscripts in the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris, which appear in installments in the Bibliothèque de l'École des Chartes. No index. Every time you have to write to Paris, where they have handwritten indices, very good ones, in the manuscript room of the Bibliothèque Nationale. Also here, Professor Kranz is trying to work on a remedy by having new indices made or by microfilming unprinted indices. Catalog of manuscripts has made great progress in recent decades and years. There are still many collections which are uncatalogued or incompletely catalogued, some of them large and important. Catalogues of Berlin and Venice are incomplete, also misleading as to shelf marks, a fact hardly known to those who have had no opportunity to work on the spot 
uh, I tell you what it is about that is the catalogers select the manuscripts and then use their own system of numbering disregarding the original mark, so that you get people who depend on these printed catalogs are likely to give fictitious self-marks and to be unaware of the original self-mark and of the large holdings that are not covered by these catalogs. It's really a dirty trick. The printed catalogs of the Vatican Library are excellent, but in my estimate, and this also is not known, they do not cover more than about 20 or 25 percent of their actual holdings in Latin manuscripts. In most instances where we have no printed indices, they are unpublished indices, handwritten or typed, in the form of volumes of card files that may be consulted on the spot. They may be checked by traveling, which is in the area of interest. These inquiries should preferably be written in the local language and accompanied by two international reply coupons assuring airmail reply. In the case of very large or complicated collections, it may be necessary to employ a local scholar for a day's work or longer. In my Latin manuscript books I have included for the libraries which I visited the indices available on the spot, and there have been continuing efforts to obtain microfilms of these indices for the Library of Congress and for other American libraries. The Library of Congress has such microfilms, especially for Austria and Italy, and continues to receive others through the efforts of the indefatigable Professor Kranz. Again, I hope that in a matter of a month or a year, that collection will be complete and accessible. Microfilmed indices are also available for the Vatican at St. Louis University, for the Ambrosiana at the University of Notre Dame, and for Austrian and other monastic collections at the Hill Monastic Manuscript Library at St. John's University in Collegeville, Minnesota. The method of checking the indices of printed and unprinted catalogs is likely to yield good results. It is, in fact, the only feasible method when we are concerned with only one author or text. However, it has its obvious limitations. We shall inevitably miss all manuscripts containing unindexed or badly indexed collections, the texts hidden in badly analyzed miscellaneous manuscripts, and the texts that appear in a given catalog without an author's name or with that of a wrong author. To overcome these limitations, there is a better method which is more rewarding, but also far more laborious and time-consuming. In my opinion, it is worthwhile only when we are concerned with more than one text or author. That is, when we are looking uh, for a larger group of manuscripts of a certain type, content, or period. This method consists in actually scanning or reading from beginning to end all printed catalogs or all handwritten inventories that we can lay our hands on. In this way, we may recognize texts in our area of interest that are unidentified or unidentified or wrongly identified in the catalogs we are using. We may become aware of miscellaneous or other manuscripts that are inadequately described in a catalog and try to see the manuscript or to obtain a microphone of it. I cannot resist telling a story. This concerns Toledo. I was there twice. And um, warned by my friend Campana, I knew from an 18th century Italian inventory of the Cardinal Salada, whose manuscripts ended up in Toledo, that there was a very rich humanistic miscellaneous manuscript. I couldn't find it. The first time I looked through the alphabetical catalog, the second time through the subject catalog, the manuscript did not turn up. When I tried to organize my methods at home, I found an entry from the subject catalog entitled Orationes Variorum. I wrote a letter to the librarian with whom I had become friendly in the meantime and said, could you please tell me what this manuscript 
contains. It could be prayers, of course. Uh, and possibly what the first texts in it are. He was kind enough to send me a list of the first three or four texts, and it appeared precisely it was the manuscript which I had been looking. After that, he sent me a microfilm of the whole manuscript. I took the description from the microfilm, which filled four type pages, and a friend of mine based a book on this microfilm, comparing it with a similar manuscript in the Vatican. It's a drastic case of how important manuscripts can escape if the uh, inventory descriptions are inadequate. I have another case from the Vatican which I suppose would take too long. We shall finally come upon a lot of interesting material for which we had not been looking because we did not even know that it existed. I mean, scanning the catalogs means that my attention is called to material of which I didn't even uh, know existed. And therefore I would never have looked for it. And this is a way of making fines, for example. The handwritten inventories which we must use where there are no printed catalogues are very uneven in quality. But some of them are as good as some of the better printed catalogues. Much better than some of the worst printed catalogues. For our purpose, so-called topographical inventories that describe a collection in the original sequence, manuscript by manuscript, are in most instances preferable to alphabetical indices. There are, there are exceptions. They tend to be more complete. They cover a miscellaneous manuscript as a unit, whereas it is difficult or impossible to recompose the content of a miscellaneous manuscript from an index. And they give a vivid impression of the physiognomy of a collection, of its sources and history, of its content, its strength and weakness in terms of subject matter, period and geography, of its size, arrangement, and shelf mark system. There are a few instances where the index of a collection is more complete than its inventory, or where only an index exists, but I can assure you that these cases are most exasperating. And I found them in many countries, not only in Italy and Spain, but also in countries which have the reputation of being more modern and orderly, including Sweden and Switzerland. <laughs> In pursuing our search through printed or unpublished catalogues, we must be careful not to miss entire groups of manuscripts that might easily escape our attention. There are small libraries that are little known but quite rich in certain areas. And many large and famous libraries contain, in addition to their main manuscript collection, separate collection of autographs, or one or several separate collections, as they call them in Italy, fondi minori. And you can be uh, sure you go all through the main collection of a library and then learn, after years and decades, of an additional fondo minore of which nobody else had told you. I had this experience in Florence uh, after 30 years of work, I think, and in Padua after 50 years of work. You just are there and the librarian doesn't tell you that they are there. <laughs> they pull an inventory out of their desk someday when they begin to realize that it might be of interest. <laughs> Some of these separate collections have escaped me for decades, even in libraries that I thought I knew well, such as the Vatican or the National Library in Florence, or the City Library in Siena, where I found in the uh, research done by a friend of mine, a British friend of mine, uh, that there was a whole collection of autographs nobody ever told me about. And I fortunately was able to go back to Siena and to cover it, but I have reached the age where um, it is no longer easy for me to fill such gaps. 
Some manuscript collections are not attached to libraries, but to archives, museums, or learned societies, and thus are easily overlooked. For example, a beautiful manuscript collection in Florence belonging to the Museo Horn, when I visited it. I finally got into it and found remarkable things there. And the, uh, the uh, janitor in charge told me, I said, well, why does nobody even cite this collection? It's only, uh, well, two blocks from the Biblioteca Nazionale or from the Archivo di Stato. And he said, well, this collection was donated to the, uh, uh, to the uh, Superintendenza for the galleries. It was mainly of interest for its art objects. And when the people from the uh, office of the galleries came here and saw these books, they said, you close that door and tell nobody what's behind it, because they're unwilling, they were, felt they were not equipped to catalog or to administer it. Some collections may contain just one manuscript that's of interest to us must also know that manuscripts are not always in or near the place where they were written. Manuscripts like works of art have been scattered over the centuries all over the world and may now be found practically anywhere. I remember a scholar um, writing a book about a 16th century Latin poet uh, was surprised that she found no manuscripts of this poet in a castle near Venice where this man had spent a few uh, weeks of his life. I would be surprised if there had been any. Manuscripts are, of course, there where they should be expected. In Venice, in the Vatican, in Florence, and other such places, people usually don't leave their manuscript books in a private home where they happen to spend a few years. It is a naive conception of the history of books. Much work has been done to reconstruct some famous collections of the past that are now scattered and to determine the present location and shelf mark for each manuscript once contained in that collection. The work done for the libraries of King Matthias Movranus of Hungary, of the Aragon Kings of Naples, of the Visconti and Sforza of Milan has been most useful. And it's always good to look up the uh, uh, publications on these libraries because they were rich and leading libraries and they likely contain important manuscripts. We know what happened to them. They're scattered, but there are solid blocks of them in places like Paris and Valencia and so on. This kind of work is based on coats of arms and ownership notes often on the testimony of old inventories and concordances. <laughs> History of manuscript collections, as that of libraries in general, is an important branch of intellectual and cultural history. This might interest you in connection with the library school. Library history is an important auxiliary discipline for the study of literary and textual history. It is special assistance to us when we can identify a manuscript well described in the catalogue of a collection now scattered with a manuscript actually preserved in an extant collection but poorly described in its current catalogue. Very often the descriptions found in earlier catalogues of libraries not existent is more helpful than the description in the latest of the, uh, of, uh, the library where the manuscript is not preserved. For example, there are some, uh, some uh, I had to recur to such older descriptions in many cases. Oops. And uh, Mercati did this in many cases for manuscripts of the Ottoboni collection in the Vatican. Has to be done with the Reginenses in the Vatican. Many instances, however, we are unable to identify an interesting manuscript recorded in an old inventory or catalog that must reluctantly confine uh, it to the limbo of sources now lost with the uncertain hope that it may reappear in the future when some inaccessible collection will be finally catalogued or sold. This does happen, that manuscripts disappear for centuries until they turn up again. After having located a manuscript through catalogues or inventories, we are ready to proceed one further step and to inspect the manuscript itself, or at least to obtain a microfilm of it. 
The microfilm is necessary. Not only when we want to edit a text contained in the manuscript, but also we want to read it, or merely to verify the available descriptions of the manuscript. For a microfilm will tell us much more than a printed or handwritten description. You will disclose many details that interest us that may not be mentioned in the descriptions, such as the appearance, date, and place of the script. Very often one look at a microfilm shows that the dating given in the catalog is wrong. Happens every day. The date and place of the script, the notes of scribes or owners, and even some additional texts or prefaces. A direct inspection of the manuscript, even for a short while, is even better than a microfilm. A microfilm may skip some pages, and it always fails to give a clear impression of the size of a manuscript, of the red or other colors used in its initials or headings, and of the different hands or inks used in the text or in its corrections. I had some very interesting experiences where sitting in front of a manuscript I saw very important features that had escaped me from the printed descriptions or even from the microfilm that I had obtained. Libraries have lately become more difficult in sending microfilms on granting permission to study or publish their manuscripts. A scholar should always make sure that he obtains the necessary permissions. It observes the conditions under which they are granted. We should never lend or recopy our microfilms for the benefit of others without the permission of the library which owns the original manuscript. We should always indicate clearly and accurately the library and shelf mark of any manuscript we copy, cite, or refer to. We should send to each library a copy or an off-print of a publication for which one or more of its manuscripts have been used. The failure of many scholars to observe these rules will uh, be resented by the libraries and will make work in this area more difficult for future scholars. Whatever we, whenever we edit a text from one or several manuscripts, and whenever we prepare a list of the manuscripts containing a certain text or the writings of a certain author, we must give an accurate description of all manuscripts used. In addition to the precise name of the library and the original language of the country in which it is located, we must give for each manuscript its correct and complete shelf mark as used in the library. A manuscript cited without shelf mark or with the wrong shelf mark is like a person without an address or perhaps even without a name. It cannot be found. Shelfmark lore is a kind of occult science, for the system differs from library to library and cannot be understood except by a librarian or a person who has spent at least one day in the library. The young editor of one of my books once asked me please to make my manuscript references uniform. I could not I could not comply. I replied that each library has its own shelf mark system and I have to quote each manuscript with the shelf mark which it has in the place where it is kept. Life would be easier if all libraries adopted the simple system of using serial numbers for all its manuscripts. This has never been the case and I'm afraid it will not change. There's nothing we can do about it. At least in this case, we must subordinate our reforming zeal to the facts of life. We must indicate whether the manuscript is written on paper or parchment and indicate the total number of its folios. Some scholars demand also measurements and watermarks, two demands I have usually avoided. We must determine, I never claim to give a catalog. In a catalog this should be said, but I do not publish catalogs and I'm not a professional bibliographer. We must determine the date and place of origin of a manuscript, preferably from notes found in the manuscript or from its content. And I formulated the criterion, which has been accepted by most of my colleagues, that a miscellaneous manuscript 
may uh, the uh, origin of the mis miscellaneous manuscript may be determined on the basis of the rarest text it contains. Where no such data are available, we must work from paleographical criteria that will allow us to assign a manuscript at least to a half century, and sometimes to a shorter period, and at least to the region or country, if not to the city. I think I have reached the stage where I can distinguish between a manuscript written in Italy and elsewhere that makes a difference. I have recently formulated another criterion, I mentioned this. The manuscript does not offer us the author and title of a work, either in a heading or in a colophon or concluding note. The safest and most widely used procedure for identifying a text are its beginning words. We have a number of good catalogues of incipits, as they are called, such as Thorndike and Kyber, Little, Mohan, and others. These lists of incipits cover only certain subject matters. Not all areas of Renaissance literature are covered by such precious lists. I'm pleased to report that the collection of incipits prepared by the late Bertolot for humanistic texts is now ready for the press. It may be expected to appear in the not-too-distant future. I hope the first volume covering verse texts will appear this year. We should also be aware of some basic types of manuscripts. They may be neat copies intended for libraries, or working copies used by students or other readers, or dedication copies, or even autographs. The claim that a given manuscript is autographed is more easily made than proven. There's only one way of proving the claim, that is by showing that the handwriting in question is identical with a signed or well-attested specimen of the respective hand. Autographs are important, to be sure, but they are sometimes overrated. There may be errors even in an autograph. And a given autograph may not represent the final text of the author. On the other hand, the mere fact that a letter or text is not in an author's hand does not prove that it is a forgery, as some people seem to believe. It may very well be the original, but not written in the author's own hand, but dictated by him or copied from a scribbled draft. We don't consider a contemporary letter as forged if it is typed by a secretary. The same is true of our period. People have very often mistaken ideas about this and drew, draw wrong conclusions, wrong inferences from their mistaken assumptions. Since we must depend so much on catalogues and inventories for the discovery of manuscript texts, the ideal goal would be to catalog all extant collections and to make up a complete inventory of all these texts written in our period, something that has been attempted and largely carried out for the art and music of the period. The task is big and difficult, and it requires a lot of trained manpower that is not easily available nowadays. But cataloging as well as microfilming also helped to preserve the manuscripts and their content. And the irretrievable losses of the last war should serve us as a warning. But the press and the public show very little interest in this type of cultural property, except when there is a sensation with political overtones, such as the discovery of the Leonardo manuscripts in Madrid, where the uh, journalists were very quick say that it's scandalous that the 20 or the 25,000 manuscripts of the Biblioteca Nacional had not been properly uh, catalogued at the time, but they did not know how they would secure the funds and the manpower to do it and not uh, know that uh, similar conditions exist in most major libraries uh, of the world, including the Vatican, Paris, and the British Library, which in this country have a better reputation as uh, the Madrid Library has or had at the time. I found it most unfair. When there is a disaster, such as a flood in Florence, it is easier to drum up support for the preservation of art monuments than of books or manuscripts, however valuable. 
I remember there was a committee meeting to which I was invited, presided by Mrs. Kennedy, and when I said that some of the funds collected should be appropriated for the preservation of books and documents, Mrs. Kennedy strongly objected, but I'm happy to say she was outvoted uh, when I put my motion, and I'm glad to say that many of my colleagues in art history voted with me. They represented the majority. There is very little public understanding for this kind of problem. The results of our search for manuscripts may be of different kinds. The goal that is most eagerly sought and most rarely attained is the discovery of texts that are new and had been previously unknown, and of course also that are considered interesting. I remember from my own experience two such lucky discoveries which may seem to me more important than to others. A group of early writings of Marcello Ficino, the head of the Platonic Academy of Florence, from which it appeared beyond any question that he had undergone in his youth a thorough training in Aristotelian scholasticism. In the group of medical commentaries composed in Salerno during the 12th century, which proves that this school, at the time the chief European center of medical practice and instruction, took a turn towards medical theory and natural philosophy at an early date and contributed to the rise of scholasticism at the same time that other centers developed comparable methods in other fields, for example, Bologna in law, Paris and Oxford in theology and philosophy. There is no generally accepted view as to what constitutes a discovery. A distinguished historian of science once denied that another scholar had discovered some manuscripts because these manuscripts were duly listed in the handwritten inventory of the respective library and their existence hence was known to the director in charge of the library. I find this view ridiculous and am willing to recognize it as a discovery when a text, though mentioned in an inventory or even in a printed catalog, is studied for the first time in the scholarly context to which it belongs. Of course, a text thus discovered may be short or lengthy, and it may belong to a more or less important author. Yet even a text of modest size or importance may, by its mere existence, help to confirm or to refute some prevalent scholarly I mean, I firmly maintain that in many instances the mere existence of a text is sufficient to refute a conventional or fashionable opinion on the subject. I know instances. Very uncomfortable for those who don't work with primary sources, but valid. It was long believed, and it's still repeated by some historians, that there was no secular eloquence during the Middle Ages. But over the years and decades, manuscript evidence has accumulated that at least in Italy, such secular eloquence was practiced, at least since the early 13th century, if not before. In this, as in many other instances, if there is a conflict between a scholarly opinion on textual or documentary evidence, the evidence wins and the opinion goes. And I am completely, and I follow in this the epistemology of Epicurus, who being a materialist is probably more acceptable to my opponents. And I am completely unimpressed by those who argue that an opinion thus drastically refuted is still true in a higher sense than it used to be said. There is no higher sense. What is wrong in the plain sense cannot be true in a higher sense. And medieval authors who believed in allegorical interpretation of the Bible and of other writings never dreamed that a higher sense, when added to the little sense, would be in flat contradiction with the letter. It merely added to that. All kinds of misunderstandings around. More frequent than the discovery of new texts is the discovery of additional manuscripts for a text that had been known for some time. These additional manuscripts may be important. For example, when a second manuscript is found for a text previously known from only one manuscript, that is significant. 
indicates wider diffusion. The additional manuscript may contain an unknown preface, a new title or date, or a new adaption of a known work, or autograph corrections or variants. Finally, in cases where the manuscripts are numerous, I suppress some stories because time is getting short. In cases where the manuscripts are numerous, and one more manuscript may not seem significant, a complete list of the extant manuscripts, just as a list of printed editions, will provide statistical evidence for the diffusion of a text, not only in a general way, but also in terms of the chronological, geographical, and social distribution of the text. My friend Professor Sudek made and gave a nice specimen of this kind of investigation for Leonardo Bruni's uh, translation of the pseudo-Aristotelian economics. He ended up with over 200 manuscripts. I'm afraid manuscript, uh, manuscript research has become for me, as for any other scholars, a kind of passion and even of addiction. It is hard to stop this kind of inquiry once you have tasted its attractions. Each manuscript is a unique historical witness and is apt to bring its surprises. Moreover, the information supplied by a given manuscript is not static, for the recombination of old and new evidence may constantly lead to new conclusions. Hence, all significant manuscripts should not only be preserved, catalogued, and made accessible through microfilms, but they should continue to remain subject of further study and of editing. I like to think of the sum total of manuscript collections in addition to the collection of printed books as a bibliothèque imaginaire, comparable to Mauriac's Musée Imaginaire. <laughs>